Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary, And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Good morning. We're waiting for our guest to come on on Guest Thursday because I forgot to send her the link. I wrote to her. I said, so excited to see you this morning. Can't wait. Blah, 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 blah. And then sent her no link. So I hope she gets this quickly. I'll just remind you, there's not a scary person over here. The computer's over here. So if I look sketchy, <laughs> that is why. Um, all right. Uh, Dr. Mary, anything you want to say about the hundreds and hundreds of people who wished you well on Tuesday? I, I actually want to thank everyone. I got, um, well, let's, as of this morning, I've got... Oh, are you a numbers counter, Dr. I, Mary? I apparently, well, it's the scientists doing <laughs> You have to say something while it's happening. I have... Um, Scroll up. You're on the wrong spot, I'm I think. on the wrong spot. Can I just say 200 plus? Can we just say that? There's Jennifer. Many, yes. many people. So 267. Yeah, that's a lot. Practically viral, Dr. Mary. Yeah. Let's bring Jennifer on because she's here. <laughs> what a space filler that was. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. Good morning, Dana. Good morning, Dr. Mary. How are you both? We are great. I'm going to turn the volume up a little bit. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thank you for joining us. I'm so sorry. I forgot to send you the link. I was feeling so good about myself. I got it out. Yeah. You have to actually hit paste. Otherwise it doesn't do anybody any good. We've all been guilty of that. I mean, let's well, you know, multiple times. Oh yeah. I was going to say all this streaming is brand new to us. Yes, so you're taking two years. Yeah. It's preposterous, <laughs> but we're happy that you are here. Uh, and guest audience, Jennifer and Maz are meeting each other in exactly the same amount of time that you are. So uh, if Maz has questions and you have questions, this is a great place to ask them. Good morning, Jennifer. Nice to meet you, by the way. Likewise, and congratulations. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Yeah, five years. It's a big deal. It feels like both, how is it possible it's already been five years and how has it only been yeah. five years? But when you consider that two of them are the, what we now call the lost years, it's really been like 65 oh, years. They're getting called the lost years, are they? That's what I'm going to start calling oh, okay. them. <laughs> I thought it was official. Yeah, no. So we can have a lost years holiday in about a decade. No, I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, Jennifer, thanks so much for getting up early and joining us. You are with the Colorado Consortium for, it's got an actually a longer name, Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Is there even more? Is this Center for Prescription Drug? Yep, that's it. Great. Okay. So <laughs> tell us. Coaching from the floor there. I know. I appreciate Stop. that. <laughs> tell us what that means. What, what's that mean in layperson terms? It's a big, long word, a big, long title for an agency that actually is housed within the University of Colorado on our Anschutz Medical Campus. That's what makes it really long if you tag those pieces in there, too. <laughs> um, so really, we are a backbone agency bringing folks together in Colorado to do what we think makes clinical sense, makes uh, legislative policy sense, um, what makes heart sense, 
to impact prescription drug-related issues and the, I would say the broader addiction kinds of issues as well. So we're trying to bring a whole lot of people together who may not necessarily normally share the same table, bring them together, talk about what is happening, what needs to happen in order to improve folks' lives, get folks into recovery, and support people along those pathways. So first of all, wow. Yeah. That's I mean, a hell of a job. Yeah. It, I think I uh, heard cats in my day job as an arts administrator. I can't really imagine doing the work that you do because, uh, t tell me if this is true, my perception of the um, sort of medical and, and health and rehabilitation and rehab and all those places sector is that it's really siloed. Is that, is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I don't think that that's specific to North Dakota. I don't think that's specific to Colorado. I think it's everywhere, unfortunately, which is why every state needs a consortium. Yeah. Every state needs someone who can break through those silos, talk with public sector, talk with private sector, and bring those stakeholders together um, who are so entrenched and ingrained in their own silo that they can do things that actually make some sense and not duplicate efforts, not... Um, you know, spin their wheels in the same way this other agency spun their wheels with no results. So it really needs what we call a, a collective impact model. That's the official term for this model that we use at the consortium that, again, brings all these folks together to do what makes sense. And yes, every state needs it. And I would say, you know, once we get that established nationally, we need um, some of those mechanisms as well. Well, Jennifer, I just, this is, a noble goal that you've undertaken. Um, now, I the, the, my only experience with this is just talking to people secondhand. And really, when I was in rehab, I, I met a lot of people who were addicted to prescription pain medication. I know a lot of people who became alcoholics to stop themselves taking prescription pain medication. How widespread is it, really? Do you have any like figures off the top of your head that are meaningful that you can tell us? Well, I wish I did. I should. Um, I always go back to, and yes, I work for the consortium, which is the, the short term for it, where we are focused on those prescription drug medications and kind of how those branch out even to elicits. Um, alcohol is still the number one most abused drug. You know, for every patient coming into the emergency department with a substance-related issue, you've got nine with alcohol, no. you've got one with opioids. Now I would say we, we would probably have eight with alcohol, one with opioids, one with methamphetamine. You know, so the alcohol um, is still trumps it all. Yeah. Um, you said something interesting when you and I had a conversation a, a couple of weeks ago that I really struck, stuck with me is, uh, and I hope I hope this is okay. Um, you talked about all the federal funding that's that's coming into agencies like yours or individual agencies around this opioid epidemic, because it absolutely is an epidemic. But that if you consider the fact that if you have 10 emergency room visits, eight or nine of them are alcohol related, why in the world aren't we investing more in that, and I'm not asking you that because I think you have an answer, but I was really struck by, by the fact that 
I think one of the criticisms may be fairly lobbed at government, both local, state and federal, is they sort of chase shiny objects and pour money into them as long as they're mm -hmm. shiny. And it doesn't always solve the problem. Can you just talk a little bit about any of that? Sure. And, and this is really comes from my experience, not only at the consortium, but being a licensed professional counselor, licensed addictions counselor for the last 18 years doing this work. And it, absolutely. And the government, um, at least in, in the United States, has chased those shiny objects for a hundred years, for a century. I mean, we have a long history of the war against drugs and depending on um, the, the culture, depending on economics, depending on a whole host of other socioeconomic things, um, that shiny object has looked different over the decades. Um, currently, absolutely, we have uh, an overdose epidemic that is killing um, 100,000 plus folks a year. Um, and now, unfortunately, and so yes, that's a big deal. But we have always also had those kinds of numbers um, for alcohol-related issues and tobacco. I don't want to be remiss and not mention tobacco. Mm -hmm. uh, and and yes, I don't have the answer for that. But I say that it takes folks in state government in um, it's SAMHSA to acknowledge. Yes, we need to be funding all kinds of prevention. We need to be funding all kinds of intervention, treatment and recovery support, mm -hmm. which they're doing now. They now have a division of recovery support, which is so fantastic. But um, it, with, with recovery being the end goal, that always needs to be the central focus of everything. How do we get folks on that path to living self-directed lives, to being, to pursuing their, their well-being? And um, it's not one drug that is the, the demon. Mm -hmm. drug. And, and alcohol has a long history. It has a lot of money. It has a lot of lobbying. Um, it, it has a way of getting swept under the carpet. Um, and so it takes all of us to, you know, when that shiny object is coming to say, oh, yes, we're going to fund all these programs for opioid use disorder. Well, great. Let's yeah. do some things that also impact alcohol use disorder mm -hmm. and methamphetamine use disorder. And how do we do programming um, that that's going to impact and promote recovery for all types of use disorder and other behavioral addictions as well. So this is sort of a question for both of you from a user perspective and a, and a clinical perspective. Um, is, it, is it effective to try to bring all types of um, substance abuse users together to do to do this work to get them onto a path of sobriety or moderation or however you want to think of it? Or is it really more effective to say, all right, your struggle is meth. We're putting you in with all meth people, all alcoholics, all opioid mm. addiction people, or what's the efficacy of, of those models? I'm going to give you my best clinical answer for everything. Okay. It depends. Okay. <laughs> so and it really does. It really does. Uh, it depends on your geography. You know, we have 64 counties in Colorado, which probably mimics a lot of you know what you have in in, uh, in North Dakota as well, because we have rural and frontier areas where yeah. you might have three or four folks with a substance use disorder. 
well, if they need a group or they need treatment, you're not really going to have the clinical staff and the infrastructure to actually hold a group with all the methamphetamine users over here and all the alcohol users over here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are there are benefits to divvying up groups of folks, not just on their substance use, but also um, I used to work with healthcare professionals and a lot of those, you know, doctors and and attorneys as well. And doctors and attorneys and folks who um, may see themselves in a different professional light, may have a different um, educational background, and they would do better in groups with other folks who had that same kind of professional training as them. Um, They felt, again, it's that group dynamic of, are people going to feel safe together? Mm-hmm. Are they going to feel like, yes, you get me, I get you. That's where the beauty happens in group work. And so sometimes you have folks who are um, drug snobs. I was talking to one of my, my friends the other day in, who's in recovery and she's, she's like, oh, I'm a total snob. I'm a total snob. I'm like, yeah, you are. Because she's talking about, you know, I was great because it was just alcohol. But then, you know, when my daughter started putting needles in her arms, that that was the line for me, you know, it's so if that's a dynamic among your, your folks coming into treatment or in your community where you're trying to, you know, have some recovery support groups, if those folks with the alcohol use disorder are going to be better than those folks who were using a substance, using a needle, or they were injecting substances, um, they're not going to have that same kind of immediate connection, that same safety. There's going to be a, a hoity-toity, bougie kind of attitude, and that does not help people peel away the layers of the onion, get to the root issues of why they were using whatever substance it was in the first place, which we know, I, I would like to say collectively, we know is at the root of this. Regardless of whatever your substance or behavior was, they're fruits of the same tree. You got to get down to the roots, the soil of what kind of created that void or that pain for you. And um, sometimes streamlining folks into certain types of groups based on a substance or geography or even gender identity, those can be helpful components to getting folks in to be able to feel safe to do that work that they need to do. Does that answer your question, Dana? It absolutely does. It does. So, that's a yeah. on, a, on a follow-up, though, it would would that be aftercare like NA or AA? Would that be actually in treatment? Because personally for me, I, I, I was around drug addicts, drug-addicted alcoholics, alcoholic drug addicts, whatever the, the derivations of that is. And it, it kind of helped me because we were all the same. But I could see it when you leave treatment, you go and find a group. It, it, I, I could see it being more uh, beneficial to, for me anyway to just be around alcoholics. If someone suffering from a narcotics addiction, I think they'd be better off at an, AA, at an NA meeting than an AA meeting. But I know the root problem's the same. You're trying to deal with a, a chronic disease. Is, is there any truth in that or any benefit for that, do you think? I think absolutely. I think we self-select again those folks who feel more like me, um, mm-hmm. even can you know look more like me, sound more like me um, in our uh, communities. You know, so for certainly for recovery support. But I, I'd like to point out that that what you experienced in treatment is really what I would love to see in every treatment center, uh, where folks learn to know that yeah, regardless of what you used. 
Yeah. We are. We we still are the same. We still can see eye to eye and and know um, that we are battling the same illness, and we can fight together. You know, brothers and sisters in arms, and and make this work. Well, I think um, it does help. It helped me anyway. Absolutely, you do. There are some personalities, though. I would say that that uh, Dr. Mary, you you would not fall in that category of. <laughs> I've met a couple of those actually. <laughs> you know, we all know some of those folks who. And, and that's also part of the illness of protecting yeah. that behavior. I got to protect my substance use. Therefore, I'm going to find any excuse whatsoever to not connect with you. I'd to like not, to not dive deeper, to yeah. not take off, you know, my shield and be vulnerable. And yeah. so a lot of times that excuse of, well, you're not like me because of X, Y, or Z is, is another protective mechanism, which ideally in treatment, you, you peel those things away. But depending on your clinicians, depending on you know the number of folks that you have for groups, you may have the luxury of a lot of clinicians and a lot of folks coming in the door for treatment that you can do some more uh, targeted group selection and group management to where you don't have to spend as much time in group trying to peel away those those kinds yeah. of things and people come in with a little more vulnerability from the outset. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And I wanted to make a little shout out to um, whoever allowed this to happen in the Fog and Moorhead area. We now have in Fog and Moorhead an AA meeting. I can't speak for anything else, but there's an AA meeting specifically for transgendered people, which I think is brilliant. Mm. Because as you said, the more comfortable you are, the more you're going to open up, the more help you're going to get. So yeah, um, your organization seems to do that. So it's a, it's fantastic. I've got a question for you. Um, you've got nearly 20, 20 years of experience in all of this. Um, do you mind if we do a little bit of rumor control just for anyone else? So I, I've heard conflicting rumors, and especially since I've been enjoying sobriety for five years, I like to quietly and respectfully fact check. <laughs> Once so, an academic, always an academic. Well, no, it's especially because no, this good. is important. Um, so I've heard over the years that opioid addiction, people like to blame it purely on two sets of people. One, um, drug reps, and then your your primary physician, who's seen that I've heard a rumor that they get a bonus for how many painkillers they give out by a certain company, and there's like trips to Hawaii or cable TV or big sound systems being delivered to the homes. Is there, is there any truth in that at all? You know, uh, there could have been 15 years ago. I, 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 in terms of the incentives and the, the bonuses, the perks of prescribing certain medications and that's pharmaceutical industries across the board. You know, they've, you know, they're bringing in lunch, they're whining and dining you They're, you know, yes, come on this trip where we're going to learn about X, Y, and Z and how to treat diabetes better. I mean, so it's not just for the, the pain management industry, but, you know, I, I think there have been laws passed and it might be federal, but certainly state uh, by state that they can't incentivize using particular substances. You can't incentivize coming to treatment and, and, seeing a certain treatment provider. If I'm a, as a clinician, if I refer somebody to a treatment provider, I can't get bonuses or perks exactly. or yeah. gifts. Um, it, and it may still be happening. You know, the whole brokering, um, human brokering that was happening for getting folks to into treatment and 
those referral sources were getting all kinds of perks, you know, mm-hmm. so unethical, so gross. It just makes my stomach turn. Um, but I can't say for sure that that was not happening at the height of um, the pain management and the Oxycontin, you know, flooding mm-hmm. into the market. Um, but to your first part of that, in terms of blame, you know, you know, if you think about one in 10 individuals are going to become, you know, addicted to some sort of substance. If that were, you know, if that applies to alcohol, it applies to most anything. You know, if we gave everybody who came in our doors, you know, the emergency department, if we gave everybody, you know, a bottle of Jack Daniels, you know, more than likely we're going to end up with a few more folks who have a problem with alcohol because of the exposure. And wow, this really lights my neurons. This really fills that void and takes away that pain that I've been experiencing. I really like this stuff. Um, if everybody was exposed to that, and then you know, we are going to have a higher percentage of individuals. And I think that's exactly what we've seen with opioid use disorder. I mean, it has a high affinity for those opioid receptors in the brain, which are designed to feel good, to designed to take away pain. And to, to borrow a, a lovely phrase, which I'm sure you've heard from Gabor Mate, one of your neighbors to the north um, from Canada, physician, you know, he said, you know, why are we still talking about addiction? Why are we asking why the addiction? We need to be asking why the pain. Huh. Yeah. That is what is at the root of all this. Why the pain? And when we're given everybody, we used to, when we're given everybody opioids who come in the door because they have a little bit of pain, they sprang their thumb, they, you know, broke their toe, whatever. Um, we're going to be increasing the number of individuals who get that ah, because of the the pain that they're experiencing physiologically as well as psychologically. Mm-hmm. And so wow. I, I do think there is truth to those kind of being the, the creating the tinderbox and maybe the, the flame to turn on some of those uh, yeah. addictions for yeah. individuals. Well, I mean, the only reason I asked you that is because, you know, at the first stages of being treated with addiction, of course, you know, you, and my my counselor, bless her, she, um, I've never said the word but in a sentence in the last five years. You know, she goes, she goes I know, but no, it, it, deal with it. This is, I have met a load of people that blamed their doctor or whoever was giving them the drug. I just thought, what am I going to do? Sue Jim Beam? <laughs> it's, it's not their fault I became an alcoholic. So I think, and I, it, it, it was mostly the people who were addicted to the to the predict, pre- prescription painkillers. They seemed to have more anger in them, and I think it's because most of them were injured. And again, the tragedy of all that is through no fault. You I mean it's not a? I want to go out and start be today. I want to be addicted to a painkiller. I mean that never happens. Yeah. Well, so you don't start drinking people. alcohol saying, "Oh, I want to," you know, put this before my family, my friends, my job. Yeah. You don't start that either. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's true. I was going to. Um, now, one more. Sorry, one more question. Um, it's our show. You can ask the question. Well, I, I take, give them one more, <laughs> take right. a breath or have a drink of coffee or something before I can. It's like a job interview. All right, this. go ahead. Um, is there a link? I mean, how and how how prevalent is it for um, you know you're 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 on painkillers. You, you're trying to lie. You're trying to fill prescriptions, and if you get cut off. Is there a correlation between people who get cut off from a painkiller and then start taking meth? Not methamphetamine directly, but heroin. Oh, wow. That feels so. Since they're from the same drug classification, they're both opioids. 
Um, there is a huge, absolutely there's evidence. And that's why at the consortium, we do dabble in, and we, we do a lot of work, not dabble, but we do a lot of work in harm reduction as well with individuals who are using heroin because uh, a majority of those individuals started with prescription pain medications. Um, whether it would be recreational or whether it would be because of a prescription, because of an injury or an illness, uh, a lot of individuals, especially as that pendulum swings, we see it in every industry, you know, the pendulum swung from everybody's getting Oxycontin when they walk in the door of our emergency department, if they have any kind of pain, which why would you be in the emergency department if you're not in pain? Um, right. You know, everybody's getting this drug when they walk out to know, you know, we're going to use alternatives to opioids, which is a great strategy. However, when you have individuals with chronic pain issues um, who have been taking their medications and now physicians are saying, oh, nope, we're not going to give this to you anymore. Um, okay. Uh, I want you to um, manage your chronic pain now with these other methods. And the, the psychological and the physiological damage that that can do is incredibly dangerous. And you have individuals, we hear a lot and, and talk a lot with individuals from the chronic pain community specifically who um, have horrible stories. Individuals are forced to, really forced to find oxycodone or other opioids on the street, which are now um, tainted and poisoned with, with fentanyl. Um, so that's incredibly dangerous. Or, and then they're expensive. So heroin is cheaper, so they're going to use heroin to then manage their chronic pain. Yeah. And um, it's either that or, I, I hate to even say the words, but we have a lot of suicide deaths because yeah. of individuals who just cannot bear the, the pain. And they've been cut off from their doctors. They're not being treated um, because, again, the doctors are afraid to, well, I'm not supposed to be prescribing this anymore, so therefore I can't treat you. Well, try and find a pain management doctor in the middle of, you know, Del Norte, Colorado, which is a, you know, a very rural area, you're, you're not going to find that. So it, there, there absolutely is truth to individuals going to illicit forms of opioids who, because they've been cut off from or can no longer get a legitimate prescription. Wow, that is really that is incredible to think about. Um, I want to pull up a question from John Z. I'm not positive it's a question. I often ask myself, why are we the country where everyone seems to want to turn to some drug or addiction in order to get through the day? Doesn't seem other countries have the same issues. I don't know that that's true, actually, because if you think about like Scandinavia has terrible challenges with alcoholism and some other things, but maybe it is. So I wonder what is so stressful about our country that we aren't addressing to eliminate these cravings of escape. Sort of goes back to your point about um, let's not question the addiction, let's question the pain. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. It, it, really is, it really is about what is the root problem? Are we so, do we have so much abundance that we just in, in some sort of lack of gratitude for it, we just don't even notice it. So we think things are worse than they are or are things worse than they are? Because in actuality, we've been conditioned to believe that America is an amazing place to live. But for many, many people, it's really not. And, you know, to borrow from Johan Hari, you know, a big, one of my favorite quotes that has ever come out of this field has been, you know, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Mm. It's human connection. That's the opposite of addiction. So when, to answer your question, that's the first thing that pops into my mind is, you know, are we connected? Do we know our neighbors? 
Mm. And if we are connected, is it that shield is still up? I'm still protecting, you know, I can't be vulnerable. Yeah. You know, or you know, that's that's one of the things I, I fell in love with and how I got into working in substance use disorder field is because I fell in love with people in recovery. Mm. Uh, because recovery is so beautiful and you walk into the rooms and there's so much vulnerability and sharing and love and connection. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what we are thirsty for. We are starving for. And so to, to answer that question, yeah, I, I think we have less connection in our culture. I won't say specifically our country, but in this individualistic, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, kind of, I can do this on my own. But where's the connection in that? I suppose these last two wow. years have made it all worse too. Isn't it? That's, that's really um, amazing. And it speaks to the fact that I've many times in these 18 months said on this show that I have a, um, almost an envy of the community that Maz had and has a little bit gone back to around AA because where can anybody who doesn't, who hasn't been sort of stripped down to the, to the base and working to build themselves back up, where can anybody else be that vulnerable, be that honest, that raw, that broken and be accepted? I've, I've never encountered the kind of support in my life that he has on a, regu- on a regular basis. And I guess you could say, well, maybe I don't need it because I didn't become an alcoholic, but don't we all need that kind of support? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It is. It's it's free therapy, really. But it's more than therapy because therapy is so often you and one other person. This is this is storytelling and and pure support in a in a truly extraordinary way. So, um, Jennifer, before we wrap up with you, because this has been so interesting, tell us what is the state from your perspective of this crisis of this work that you have committed your life to what are the what are the things that are working that we may have some hope in seeing a decrease of this if anything i think one of the few silver linings of of covid and this this pandemic that we're still struggling through has been the highlight on the need to fund mental health and mental mm. health services, yeah. um, you know, of which substance use disorder is certainly under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, so the need to pay attention to this, the need for everyone to have access to mental health services, whether that be telehealth, because you know, this is a, this is a, a very effective and beautiful way of connecting. Still, it, it's not quite the same as being in person, but it absolutely is can be just as powerful and certainly therapeutic. And so the the attention to the need to invest in mental health, the attention, prevention has always been kind of the the little person on the totem pole. uh, And prevention has always been funded and kind of an afterthought. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not as bad as recovery. Recovery has always been like, what? What's that? We're going to focus here on on treatment, right? Um, and then so, you're on your own, sort of shoot you out the door and Godspeed. Exactly. So mm-hmm. I think we are now paying more attention, we being the, the funders and the infrastructure and the folks delivering services to the entire continuum and realizing, again, that recovery is at the center. So however folks can get there, 
Um, so we need to invest in prevention services. We need to invest in community support services. We need to invest in treatment services, um, all with the end goal of how do we get folks integrated and into this place and supported in recovery, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like for them. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that that is going to help us. Um, I, I, I tell our, and I work with an amazing team. I didn't say that earlier. I apologize. Uh, I tell my team members kind of that Gabor Mate piece, even though we're working on um, implementing harm reduction strategies, we're in, uh, working on getting syringe access for folks who are using or injecting their substances. We're working on fentanyl test strips because people who die from their drugs can't get into recovery from their drugs. So we're working a lot of, in harm reduction. We're working a lot in educating providers on how to manage certain prescription medications so that they don't contribute to more problems for folks. We're, we're doing a lot of work, but again, it comes back to what I tell our team, a reminder team, which is Gabor Matei is, that's the, the root of prevention is why the pain? So we need to make sure that there are funding opportunities, that there are programs for individuals and not just adolescents. You know, granted, they, they need a lot of support. They need a lot of connection. They need a lot of prevention. But adults, adults do too. You yeah. look at the number of individuals who started their substance use during this pandemic, adults. Yeah. You know? And so we need to be focusing on, on prevention and getting them connected with, with communities, getting them opportunities for support, hopefully intervening before things get too deep mm -hmm. for them. But if it does get to a point where they need some, some treatment, that we have access to getting into treatment. And it shouldn't just be for folks with uh, funding, you know, folks with yeah. means. Right. Uh, this problem, like so many of these big problems is so clearly not a one size fits all, nor is it a one, one silo again can fix this. Mm. You know, it comes down to, uh, do people have access to high quality education? Do they have access to jobs? Do they have access to, to things that feed their curiosity and their passion? Do they have access to community and libraries and arts and culture and all those things. And, and to say, well, we just need to make sure that we've got treatment opportunities available for people. We'll never actually start solving the root of the problem. And we're so, I do think this is an issue in America. We are so um, reactive driven instead of proactive driven. We'd much rather try to deal with somebody who's 10 years into an addiction then start when they are preschoolers and get them into preschool, which we know will make a huge difference to their ability to stay in school, which will enhance their, all the things. And that's not to imply that only poor people have these problems, but it's just extraordinary how complex and how multifaceted this problem actually is. Just Absolutely. Absolutely, which is why I, I love what I do and I feel so privileged to get to work for the consortium, which is bringing, taking a look at all those facets of the problem, bringing together stakeholders in each of those domains. Um, we've got policy folks, we have treatment folks, we have recovery and harm reduction folks, we have regulatory folks, and then we're talking with local communities, we're talking with state legislators, trying to bring you know the, the local problems up to make policies that, that make a difference going down. And because it's not, there is not one answer, mm. as you just said, Dana. There is yeah. 
there's a multitude of us who need to work together um, on the problems that we currently have. There's also a multitude of folks who need to be working in the prevention area and talking about you know, access and connection and creating that in their communities. And I also wanted to point out one of the things that always comes up in Colorado um, when you were talking about needs and, and things that people don't have access to. We've got places throughout Colorado, and I'm sure this is even more so the, the case where you are. People don't have access to broadband Internet. Right. Yeah. Right. So and those of us who live in these metro areas, we forget about that. I know. I know. How can I engage in telehealth? Yeah. How can I get treatment? I can't leave the ranch and I don't have internet access. Yeah. yeah. Or the reservation in North Dakota's yeah. case um, is where a lot of our broadband is missing. Oh, Jennifer, so Jennifer, interesting. I, I, sorry, I've got one more question. Is there is there any advice you can give someone who say they, they're in pain, they've had an injury and they go to a doctor? Have you got if you're comfortable saying this, any advice you go to the doctor and they say, hey, I'll give you some painkillers. What can you say? You say, no, thank you. I want to try, I don't know, a muscle relaxant or something. Is there any little bullet you can share with people to say, why don't you ask a doctor if this is an option? Well, um, in, in Colorado, we have this program and it's expanding nationally called Alternatives to Opioids. And physicians are being trained on this. So hopefully, number one, you're not going to get asked that. Um, but if you are in a position where you're going to the emergency room and they're saying, okay, well, what kind of, you know, I'm going to write you a prescription for pain medications. I would say, you know, is there evidence that I can take Advil and Tylenol to manage this just as effectively? Um, in, in dentists, we don't always know this, but in, uh, dentists are usually the first to expose somebody in their life to a, a pain medication. Think about when you, what age were you when you got your wisdom teeth out? Yeah. Wow. And there is there's a, interesting. a ton of evidence in the dental community now that's being pushed out and adopted, you know, in other wider medical communities where you know, using Advil and Tylenol or say ibuprofen and acetaminophen, using that on a schedule is just as effective in managing pain as an opioid is. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And, and so, you know, I, I tell this story, I, I would get so worked up. My, my daughter, bless her heart, she was about eight years old and broke her arm and I was out of town. And so my husband's calling me in a panic. I'm at the emergency room. They're resetting her arm. You know, they mm -hmm. want to write me this prescription. They want to send me this prescription for, I don't know, it's called hydromorphone something. It, of course, he couldn't say the word. And I'm like, you are not giving my eight-year-old Dilaudid. You're not sending my daughter, my eight-year-old home with that. I mean, she has a broken arm. Yes, it's going to hurt. However, we need to learn distress tolerance. We, you know, right. Advil and Tylenol, Elevation, Ice, all of those things still work. Why yeah. are we going to expose my eight-year-old to, to this incredibly potent and potentially dangerous um, drug? Yeah. So, you know, I think we have to be better advocates. We have to be advocates for our loved ones who are going into surgeries yeah. and things like that to have those conversations. Well, what else, what other options are there for managing pain? And I think we've kind of forgotten, and I think the medical profession may have forgotten this. The reason you hurt is because your body doesn't want you to move until something fixes itself. So if you dull the pain, you're going to keep moving the bit that's damaged. Oh, yeah, that's true. Absolutely. And the more, you know, pain is a useful tool, as you just mentioned. And if we're, if we're terrified of it, we're, we've been trained as a, as a culture to be terrified of it. Oh, we don't want to have pain. Well, yeah, it's uncomfortable. But you know what? As long as you know, again, we can ice it, we can elevate it, we can do things to mitigate that while it's healing. Yeah. 
we're, we're okay. And we're learning some important skills to tolerate distress, yeah. which we do not do well in our culture anymore. No, it's, that's another piece of John's question. I think we, we want quick fixes. We want things to be immediately solved. And so there's, ah, oh my God, this has been fantastic. Bless you and bless your team yeah. for the work that you do. Absolutely. I, I can't say that honestly enough. It's a pleasure to meet you. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor to, to share with you all today. And it's been an honor to get to know you both through um, this vehicle. And uh, I, I love your, your guests. I love your conversations. And oh, feel free, you. you know, for you and anyone connected with you to, to reach out to us, happy to share um, whatever we can to help folks in any state, in any country for that matter, to, to do things again that make sense and, and help folks get to that end goal. Um, get to recovery and prevent the, these things from happening in the first place. Thank you thank so, you. so thank much, you, Jennifer. You. was just really enlightening and um, a great way to end our week. So everybody else, we will see you live next Tuesday. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.